Hi, you're listening to Manufactured, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. I'm your host, Kim von der Weert, student of human rights, turned garment factory manager, turned sustainable fashion critic. On this show, I talk to some of the most integral people who manufacture what we wear. They aren't the people you see in fashion magazines. They're the people behind closed doors working in fashion supply chains. This episode is part of a mini-series called Crossover Moments, where we explore key moments of personal transformation. We talk to industry experts about the pivotal moments that led them to question and ultimately reject or let go of conventional approaches to sustainable fashion, breaking defaults and choosing alternatives. We're thrilled to bring you our 100th episode of Manufactured, and I can't even believe I'm saying that. It's a special milestone in our podcast journey. It's been an incredible ride filled with insightful stories, inspiring guests, and engaging conversations, and I, for one, have learned so much from doing this show. It's been a labor of love, and it's been a bit of an experiment, and we weren't sure whether it would work. So we want to express our heartfelt gratitude for being an integral part of supporting us in our quest to illuminate fashion supply chains and change the industry we love for the better. On this episode, my co-founder Jesse Lee and I are in conversation with Bergson Wang, who shares with us the story behind his crossover moment, which led him to question and ultimately let go of conventional approaches to sustainable fashion. With over 20 years of experience, Bergson has navigated diverse roles within the garment industry, working for big brand buying offices in China, directly for factories, and also for inspection and auditing companies. He now works freelance. He shares a bit about why he continued to switch to different positions within the supply chain, and why he hoped that each move would help him have more of an impact. His pivotal crossover moment came in 2011, during a team meeting while he was working for a buying office, where he began to question if audits really were an effective way of driving positive change. Frustrated with an industry that prioritized profit over meaningful transformation, this marked a significant shift in Bergson's career, from being an auditor to becoming now a freelance trainer. If you're new to this mini-series and wondering what a crossover moment is, I encourage you to go back to the series intro episode, where we talk about what this term means and why we thought it was interesting to explore. Bergson, I wonder if we could just start, actually, if you could briefly share with us how you ended up in this world of apparel production and give an overview of the different kinds of positions you've had in the industry. After graduation from school, from university, I have uh, two years of teaching in the school. And then I came to Guangdong and uh, I joined my first company in GGM. It is uh, a garment factory producing lingerie collections for Victoria's Secret and many other big names. And my first job is just work as a work study engineer in a garment factory for, uh, I think it's a British company. We are doing a temp study for the line of the garment factory. We check the time it takes for it to complete each operation and try to optimize the production efficiency 
And also we take uh, the video camera to take a video of the process and try to find a way to improve. That's a typical thing I did. And then what? <laughs> <laughs> and then I had to run two years. I, because I came from Shanxi, I just missed my family. So I quit job and back to my hometown. I quit the job in the school. So I start again. I go to Guangdong to join a Nike factory in 1997 as an environmental specialist. I work in a Nike shoe factory. Was the factory owned by Nike? No, it's not owned by Nike. Actually, it's a joint venture from Hong Kongese people and Korean people. Yeah, it's quite big. At that time, it's 6,000 employees. They are making 100% for Nike, maybe 90% and a few percent for other brands. I joined the factory as a translator because uh, the factory has many Korean people and uh, they are hiring many Chinese Korean because they are working for Nike. Nike has a lot of documents and emails are English, so they need somebody to translate English to Chinese. And then the Chinese Korean people translate Chinese into Korean. Okay, so you were with Nike, you were working as a translator. So can you share when exactly did you get into the sustainability space? I joined the Nike factory. After just one month, I was asked to join the environmental team. And they called environment team. But in, in this team, they have a, a Korean manager and uh, they have a safety officer. They have a labor compliance specialist. So that's a big team. Because Nike is asking each factory to set up a team to work on this kind of uh, sustainability and labor compliance requirements. That's where I started. Okay, so you were officially an employee of the factory. The factory was producing 100% for Nike. Nike was looking at implementing various programs on environment, but also other issues. And you were there specifically looking at the environment piece. Is that a fair interpretation? Yes. Okay. And I know, I mean, you have many, many years of experience in this sector. After the factory that was producing for Nike, I should say, you went to several other positions in the industry. And by positions, I don't necessarily mean jobs, though I know you had a lot of other jobs too. Looking at some of these issues related to sustainability from different positions, from the position of an auditor, from the position on factory side, from the position of brand side, can you just briefly explain sort of the different angles or positions that you've been working on these issues on like throughout your career? And what was driving the change? Why did you keep switching, you know, from factory side to auditing side to brand side and then back again? What was motivating that? That's a very good question. <laughs> I think I want to do something and uh, some positive things. After around five years of working in the Nike shoe factory, Actually, I joined Adidas in 2001, May of 2001, as uh, they called SOE Auditor. SOE means a standard of engagement. It's a similar code of conduct because Adidas is also building up the team and I'm the team for apparel team in China. We have a apparel team in other countries like in Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam, and Bangkok, 
and also we have people from Taiwan. So we are a team to check the factory conditions. I'm responsible for apparel factory. So that's why I joined, start checking the apparel factory and auditing Adidas. So you went from Nike on the factory side to doing audits for Adidas. Yes. What other types of angles have you been engaged in these issues on? You also went to a third party, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes. When I started in Adidas, I have been visiting many factories. When I start from this journey from Nike shoe factory, Nike provided many trainings and many supplier sharings. I think all these kind of things make sense, not only about the environment protection, but also for labor rights, human rights, child labor, you know. And in Adidas, I think that I'm doing the right things. I go into the factory, I find out the problem, I write the report, ask them to change. If they don't change, I will advise the management to cut them off. I think this is the right way to do things in Adidas. And then in 2007, I joined Puma. We are in Puma at the time they are trying to build a China team. So I was brought on board and uh, I start build a China team to cover the social audit, environment sustainability, and chemical safety for the product. So that's a quite ambitious role and comprehensive. I'm very interested. And uh, most of the time we need to do the audit. I'm also joining the team to do the audit. We have uh, five people in, in a team. And with the time going on, I begin to think if we are doing the right things because uh, Compared with 2001, we are finding more or less same issues. And uh, especially in one case, when I visited a factory in Hesan, I did the worker interviews, a group worker interviews. I just explained what is the labor law, what is standards. And uh, one of the workers stand out and challenged me. What do you mean by talking about this? You know, it does not help in China. Nobody is falling about this. Are you going to damage this factory? I just challenged by the workers in front of everybody. So I told them we want to be helpful, but you know, she is asking, can you help us? Can you really help us? You come here once a day and you find so many problems. And we have, after that, nothing changed. What's the meaning of this? That was in 2010. So I, I begin to think if it is the right thing that we have to do in social compliance. Because another challenge is when I work in the brand, everybody tried to hide things from you. And uh, they're trying to provide fake document, fake record. They coach the workers. And you are uh, just uh, keep far away from the factory realities. It's difficult to understand what's going on in the factory. You know only the day when you are there. So I begin to think about this. And uh, one just later in 2011, we have a team meeting in Minna, and uh, I challenged the management. What is the meaning of this kind of work? We are doing audits year after year with so many factories. But if we put out the cap, the correct action plans with the Redford factory 10 years ago, it's more or less the same. Nothing changed. So what's the meaning of all this? 
well, because of this conflict, I decided to leave, to resign, to join uh, some training or capacity building programs. And that's a change I start to make. But uh, that's a big difference from working in a brand and working in a supplier or working in a trainer. Because when you go to the factory as the auditors, you are trained like a king. Everybody try to place you. <laughs> they pick you up from the airport and they treat you with nice dinners. Every word, everything you talk are correct. <laughs> and uh, you are a professional. When you change the role of uh, auditor to a trainer or, or even factory consultant, nobody cares. You come because we paid you. Take an airplane, you have to take a bus, you take a taxi to go to the factory. And everybody is busy. You need to ask us, you know, to, to find the time to, to do the training. But uh, to be honest, that's a big change from working as an auditor and uh, a trainer. But I'm very happy is that I begin to understand the factory situations. I begin to understand why the worker is challenging me in front of others on, on my training on labor laws. It's not people don't know the labor law. They know about labor law, but nobody can follow up. They are not following this. I have so many things I want to follow up on, and I see Jesse smiling, so I have a feeling that Jesse feels the same. But basically, so this moment in 2011 when you were working at Puma and you went back to your team after having this encounter at the factory and sort of put this question on the table, like, what are we doing here? I want to ask you, before that incident, and I know that this is sort of a gradual process, but I want to just be explicit. You know, what ideas did you have before this incident or maybe even at the start of your career, about what was good and what was bad? Before this scenario, I think what I'm doing is correct because we are trying to help. It is very common to have uh, injuries and uh, a worker cannot have compensation or they cannot have the salary after re resign. So all these kind at that time, it's very common. It is some workers called us and uh, they want us to help. I think we help a lot. So that's why I think what we are doing is correct. And also I think for the code of conduct, that's the right things to do. Before I joined the Nike factory, these things are new to me. And Nike spent a lot of time to train up the factory people and they work with uh, external consultants and uh, professional organization to train us. So I think these things are right things and should be followed. Follow the law, follow the international labor standards and provide a safe and healthy workplace to the workers. All these are very important and that's why we are working on this. What is exactly the question that you start to have? We see that there's these things that are happening that everybody has the intention that they want to change. And then we're trying to do certain things. We're trying to send in auditors to change it. Yeah. And then actually there's no change. What I'm trying to understand is for you, what was the question at that moment? Was your question that maybe brands don't have the power that actually maybe before you thought they had? 
Or was it that maybe it's the wrong tool, the audit is the wrong approach? Or is it that there's something that is blocking the factory manager from changing their behavior that the audit isn't doing something about? Before, when I'm working in a brand, I don't know the factory, to be honest. I only have my own thinking. I believe the factory should do this, should do that. They should follow all the standard international labor organizations and the China labor laws. And uh, also the brand, the customer is placing too much orders to the factories. And uh, it seems like they have a very strange business model in peak season and a very low business model in low season. So that's also a part of the reason. But for me, when I was in brand, I don't know factories. I don't know factory managers. I don't know workers. And uh, when I talk to the workers during audit, I believe many workers are coached. Factory managers coached. They gave me good answers, but not true answers. So when I changed my role to a trainer, to a factory manager, to a factory roles, I started to realize all these things correct, but factory has changed a lot. And factory has challenges, challenges to follow all these kind of things, especially over the years. The price of the product keep or more or less same or even lower, but the labor cost, the housing cost, operation cost escalate, and the law requirement is becoming more stricter than before. So that's a change. Factory are making much more less than before. In 1997, when I worked for the Nike shoe factory, a pair of Nike shoes cost uh, gave us uh, $20. Now you won't have uh, $20 from the brand. You know, it's very hard for the factory. And uh, at that time, the wage of the workers may be only 5% of the factory operation. Now maybe 50%. So that's a totally different profit margin for the factory operations. So if you ask a factory to do something, the first thing they are going to think if it makes sense, because before 20 years ago, even if you ask something that does not make sense, they will follow. <laughs> they will follow. They will do everything you asked. And now things change. The things I, I'm thinking, why factory had to fake? Because I understand labor laws, code of conduct, all these are applicable for workers, for labor rights. But in factory, there are many relations, contractors, service providers. They have different relations inside factory. Some people come and go. Maybe it's 20% of workers have full time. All the workers for, um, worked there for more than 15 years or 20 years. So they are still there. The factory wait for them to retire. Another group of workers may be working a few months. And some, also some workers just for a few days, they get peace rate. They don't have a time record. They get just according to the number of pieces they're making. So when the brand is going to the factory, they want to see the employment contract, that's impossible. When they want to see the payslip, that's impossible. Time record, payroll, all this, they have to pay per asset for you to review. And uh, this has to be inconsistent with each other. If they have any inconsistency, there will be zero tolerance for many brands. 
So brand is pushing something to the factory that is not working. When I listen to you talk, one of the things I wonder is, you know, if that's maybe the problem with audits is that audits sort of implicitly sort of say that the problem is bad intention. And actually what we need to be looking at is the environment and how do we change the environment so that people have the conditions to behave in a way that leads to better outcomes. I don't know. Does that resonate with you, Bergson and Jesse, either one of you? I think you are right. And factory management has restrictions to follow all these good things. It's not that they don't want to do it. They cannot do it. For example, in China, female worker get retired after 50 years old. After that, you cannot sign a labor contract with her. And after she's older than 50 years old, your factory can only sign a service contract with her. And if she's signing a service contract, the relationship is not a labor-employer relationship. And she could be paid below minimum wage. That's still legal. You know, she can work, you know, 12, 13, and 15 hours. That's also legal. Factory has changed a lot from uh, many years ago. And uh, including the investment, including the shareholders, they change a lot. And the uh, workforce, the supervisors, the organization all changed, but the compliance audit has not changed. They're still checking the same things. Many workers are older than 50. No young worker in the garment factory. The youngest maybe is uh, 30 to 40 years old. Do we still need ask a factory to do training for child labor? Do they still need to spend time on this? <laughs> so that's ridiculous for the factory. You know, last week we have a, a seminar with dozens of garment factory and the vendors. We talk about this very open. One of the factory owners just told me, yes, we have such a box. Yes, we have worker representatives. Yes, we have a unit uh, committees, but we don't use it at the factory. It is only for the brand. They need to this on their report. Workers can talk directly to us if they have any concerns because it's so difficult to hire new workers from uh, the market. And uh, we have to treat them with care. And uh, also, you know, when I ask the factory owner that nowadays many factory closed because the business is going down, you should find easy to hire. And you know how she replied to me? She told me that's not the case. If the factory is closed, the workers will go home. They won't join another factory. They won't start another relationship with a new factory, with a new colleague, with, you know, they just go home. They won't join a new factory. So this is something I cannot imagine. Jesse, what are you thinking? I have lots of thoughts. One thing is I like the example of child labor. It perfectly reflects how big the gap is between the requirements and the reality. Another thought I have, I want to ask everyone that we all agree that people have a right to work if they are capable, right? So if there is a worker that she or he already 50 or 55 years old and they are skilled and they want to find a job in the garment factory, shall we give that job? If we give that job, then we, according to labor law, we don't have to sign one specific type of uh, contract. 
But according to the social compliance, that is illegal. That is bad. So a factory who give jobs to people who are over fifty five years old and totally capable and skillful is a good deed or bad deed. It's up to where you see it. If I extend the story, so let's say there is a garment factory, they don't fire people easily. So they have workers working in the factory already thirty years. They start to work, let's say, twenty years. Thirty years after, they would be between fifty to fifty-five years old. According to labor law, the factory could fire them. They are retired. But according to the workers themselves, what if the workers still want to work because the job is okay and they are very skillful and they are happy to have a job? And in that case. The factory keep hiring those people. A、uh, good thing or bad thing? It's not just up to where you see. It's a very good question here. That what's the purpose of auditing? What kind of approach auditing brought up? Actually, my thoughts about auditing is, I want to say, the role auditing play is like a、uh, police. We have a police here, not to promote、uh, positive changes or not to promote uh, positive uh, actions. I think. So when auditing act like police. We cannot expect auditing to highlight positive things happening in workplace. We can just expect the auditing will point out the mistakes or places to be improved. But when the requirements of auditing are so outdated or so far away from the fast changing environment, how much credit or how much trust we can give to that audit? That is one thing. And the second thing I want to resonate to what Bergerson said a while ago is.、Uh, Especially when auditing become a business, who will monitor auditing? It will become the endless story, right? We have auditing to audit factory, and we also need another auditing company to auditing the auditing company. It's endless. So on that point, I want to say, is that useful or meaningful to have an auditing service? And another thing, the third thing I want to brought up is when an organization is supportive, warm, friendly. I think rules and regulations of an organization can make people feel safe, but not necessarily make people feel welcomed, included, and supported. I think it's the human factor in an organization to make people feel we are included, we are welcomed, and we are supported. And I think that's exactly why auditing failed because auditing cannot measure the human factors of organization. How are you going to measure human factor in a Quantitative way, how can you say make a judgment to say, oh, this factory hiring workers over fifty years old because they have good intention? And how can you say that factory is actually out of bad intention? I don't think auditing can measure or make judgment on the human factors of organization, and that is exactly why an organization is inclusive or supportive. What I sort of hear from both of you is that actually there's also a transformation here about maybe a shift in the idea that maybe before or earlier in your career, the idea that a brand or retailer would make a standard that applies for everyone makes sense. But the more that you're in this business, the more you start to wonder actually. Is it the brand and the retailers who should make the standard, or should the standard be made in a different way that is sort of more relevant? To come back to the example you gave about child labor, that is more relevant to the context, right? And also, Jesse, to your point, you know, you gave a number of situations. Is this good or is this bad? It depends on where you sit, right? And that is ultimately a question about who gets to make the standard. And I think. 
at least for me, now I speak about my personal view, one of the beliefs that I have let go of during my time in this sector is the idea that a standard can ever be neutral. A standard always comes from somewhere and has a point of view and was created by someone. And what I sort of wonder is, is the problem here who created the standard? Maybe that's part of it. But maybe it's also this idea that there is such a thing as a neutral standard. And maybe if we at least talked more openly about, okay, whose perspective does this represent? Who is creating this standard? That that would already get us a long way. Yes, I think you are making a good point on who is going to make the standard. I always did last week with a brand, with the suppliers, because we, in the very beginning, we told everybody you have to be open. We just want to open. We don't want to tell lies or, you know, fake. And uh, we review the brand checklist. And uh, the vendor, the factory participant, the business manager told me, this does not work. This does not work. And we take out something that does not work. And we remove something and then we discuss why it does not work, why it works, and how to make it useful for both, not only for the brand, but also for the factory and also for the vendors. They can use for their internal risk assessment. So after the discussion, I think the conclusion, the ban decided to take labor section out of the checklist. The labor section would be in an open section with the factory management to understand how the factory is organized and who is going to pay whom because in the factory there different relationships. You know, in peak time, it is a factory, but in low time, maybe only few people on the lines. And so for this month, these workers are belonging to this factory. Next month, they may come to another factory to do the work. So that's a reality of the factory. But many brands still use the checklist they developed 20 years ago. And it's not applicable anymore to today's factory business. I have seen, witnessed this kind of change from very beginning. Is that the new thing that shared workers? If a worker works in one factory and then working in another <laughs> factory? I mean, those factories, do they have a relationship or they don't have a relationship? Now, it's very common to use temporary workers. The boss is there. He never changed. The line leader or the department manager were there. They won't change. But the supervisor may change. And the workers, they change quite often <laughs> from time to time. And also depending on the business, if business is more, more worker come in. If business is low, people uh, leave. And uh, I think the typical situation in, uh, I visit is a, a factory in Nanchang. They have 100 workers, but only 20% workers are stables. And 80% of the workers are changing every day. They are working in the industry area. Industry, they have many garment factories. These workers come in the morning and they have peace rate in the afternoon and they get paid and they go another factory to work again. But in terms of social compliance, the brand, they won't accept temporary worker, subcontractors inside the factory. So that's why when every auditor is coming, these temporary workers, subcontractors, or you know, anyone freelance has to be cleared from workplace. 
something like that. And so contracting for brand is a zero tolerance <laughs> for many cases. So all these are quite common. Just imagine in peak season, you have capacity 1 million product, but in peak season, you are giving 3 million. How you handle this? You have to find external support and everybody on the street are making the product for the big brand. But in low season, you have only 20%, 30% of your capacity. So that's a very strange situation and the factory has to deal with. The brand, they don't think about too much about this. I want to close this conversation by asking if you have magical power, let's say, and you can convince all the people who are working in sustainability to let go of a certain belief, what belief would that be? And if you have the power to get them to embrace a different belief instead, what would that be? If I have the power, I wish there is no audit. Stop audit. Start talking to the people on the lines. Understand the, the challenge of the factory managers, the owners, and the workers, and see how they organize the work on the production of their product, and see what we can do together to be open, transparent, and positive, and make some change. Thanks for listening to Manufactured. I've been your host, Kim von der Weert, and if you learned something new from this episode and want to support the show, come say hi to me on LinkedIn or drop me an email on kim at manufacturedpodcast.com. And of course, subscribe, rate, and review us on the podcast app you're listening to this episode on. Take a look at the episode description for all the details and stay tuned for more.